It is Friday, the 10th of May, 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 39 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a reminder that nothing that I or any of the guests say today should be considered financial advice. The information discussed on the show is general information only, and if you're looking for financial advice, please speak to an authorised financial advisor. Just before I, I kick off the show, we actually have a Twitter account now for the podcast, so search Stock Market Movers and, and follow us on there. Um, I'll start off with just a couple of interesting statistics from companies listed in the United States. Firstly, Apple. You all know them. They trade on the NASDAQ under the ticker code AAPL. I read something during the week that on average, they buy a company every two or three weeks. In the last six months, they have bought 20 to 25 businesses. They generally do not get reported because they are small relative to the size of Apple. And the company said that they're always on the lookout for talent and intellectual property. So this just highlights how big they are, that they can do this, that would not, and it would not even make a headline. And you can almost guarantee that these companies in, in most in most languages and, and, and relative to most companies are reasonably large. So it just highlights how, how big they are. The second stat is something I saw from Activision Blizzard. They trade under the ticker code ATVI. They basically make video games. They said that the average daily user time for the company was 50 minutes, so 50 minutes per user. And if you think about that for a second, I, I play a video game maybe once a week, if, if that. And But the average user is, is 50 minutes, so there must be some serious engagement from these video companies, so I find that really interesting. You know, that that's... You know, 15 minutes a day is probably the only time a lot of people put down their phone is when they're playing these video games. So it's been a pretty gnarly week on the stock markets this week. On the NZX, we had some big news with the Pushpay founder, Chris Heslip, stepping down as CEO, and that, that caught me by surprise, to be honest. And, you know, it's been a roller co- roller coaster ride for some other companies, such as New Zealand King Salmon. But I'll have to talk talk about these from the other week. I mean, we had some other big news from the United States. We had the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, I think, on Saturday. Um, seven hours long, great watching. I'd recommend anyone that's interested in the stock market get there and view. I'm, I think I'm five hours of the way through it now. So get your popcorn and, and settle down for that. Not as good as, as what it used to be, really. Um, they've they ask questions these days, a series of analysts ask questions and then questions from the audience and the analysts seem to use it as a time to, to make speeches and, and things like that rather than just straight questions to Warren and Charlie. I think the best ones that I've seen are from, you know, the late nineties when when Warren and Charlie were really in their in their pomp and, you know, they got the just straight questions from the audience and yeah just listen to them speak for five hours. You can learn so much. Um, the reason they, they get the analysts to ask questions these days is because people basically use the 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 Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting as a, as a platform to protest about Coca-Cola and all sorts of other stuff, so they had to keep the questions relatively focused. The other big news, again, came from the United States this week, and, and basically Donald Trump was feeling trigger-happy on his Twitter account and, and fired off some tweets related to tariffs in China. First thing I would say is, as a stock investor, the last thing you should be doing is taking action based off what Donald Trump tweets, but people invariably do, and the stock market has been down because of that. I have a couple of images in my mind when it comes to Donald Trump tweeting. The first is of him trying to hide it from his staff and, you know, like sneaking on his phone to send it out. I, I know his, his, his staff gets driven insane by a lot of his tweets because they're not regulated. His code name, apparently, with the Secret Service, Secret Service according to um, Wikipedia, is Mogul. And I can imagine sort of 
Mogul was on his phone again, Mogul was on his phone again, repeat, Mogul on his phone, code blue, that sort of thing, trying to keep him off his phone. And I can sort of imagine him sneaking to the bathroom and find off tweets where no one can regulate or filter him. And, but that's, that's not the only situation I can imagine him sending tweets. The second situation I can imagine him is his just firing off tweets and going, what of it? What are you going to do? I'm, I'm Donald Trump, I'm the president, I'll, I'll, I'll do what I want. And you know, actually that's probably more realistic than the first scenario. And while we're on Donald Trump, I'll say something that will probably upset I estimate about half the people listening. And we're getting a bit off stocks for a moment, but bear with me, we're on a tangent. I I, I really don't understand why someone would, would vote for him. I thought that at the time during the election, and I, I still think that now. It's it's funny when you when you think about it. Why why would why would you vote for someone who has had one former immigrant wife after another, and one current immigrant wife that wants to stop immigration? It, it seems a bit in, insane to me. But what what do I know? I think maybe he wants to stop immigration unless you're a, a beautiful woman. I don't know. Um, and now I'll upset the other half of listeners and and say that he is by far and away my favourite US president. And in terms of entertainment value, I, I don't think you'll get better. I mean, I, I cannot vote in the United States and obviously have zero influence, so I might as well, you know, in, enjoy the ride. And and what a ride it's been. I, I can think, I think any one of the dozens of scandals that he's been involved in would have derailed other presidents or leaders. I mean, think of all the, just there's all the porn stars that have come out as, as an example. I mean, how many presidents would have survived that? But I think that before one scandal can really get a hold, a, a, another one starts up. So while I obviously hope he doesn't win the next election, my personal view is that he, he probably will. And, you know, I'll, I'll sure, surely be enjoying the the ride and the circus and the tweets as if he does, because it's certainly entertaining. Right, so now that I've I've upset everyone, Donald Trump supporters and those that aren't, well, we'll get into today, to, to today's episode. So this is the second part of what I hope to be a, a four-part series that I'm doing on the NZX. Last week, I spoke to the CFO of the NZX, Graham Law, and I recorded the conversation that we had. We had a wide-ranging and unscripted discussion where we talked about the history of the NZX, its business, we talked about IPOs and the current state of the market, as well as some some future discussions as well. So it was an incredibly enjoyable conversation for me, and, and I sure did learn a lot, which is obviously great for me doing the podcast. Now, just before we get into it, I was in Auckland recording on the phone, and, and Graham was in Wellington. So there are a couple of occasions where there was some audio issues, so please forgive me in advance, but that, that should be a reflection of my podcasting abilities, not necessarily the quality of the guest. So let's pick up the discussion, and we'll get straight on into it. So I'm here on the phone with Graham Law, who is the on the executive team at the NZX, and he's a CFO, and I believe you joined... 2017. That's that right. Program? I joined about 18 months ago. Uh, prior to that, I was with um, ACC and MP Capital. Uh, with ACC, I was head of finance. With MP Capital, I was CFO and then CEO, managing director. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and just so if, if people aren't quite sure, are you able to explain sort of what the NZX does. Yeah, sure. It's a pretty complicated business, but I I would describe it in, in three parts. Uh, the core markets business, the funds management business, and the wealth technology business. The core markets business from a retail investor perspective is like Trade Me, uh, where buyers and sellers come together to do a transaction. 
in, in our case, mm. the products, uh, the, the, the sale, sale side, are uh, equity shares, uh, bonds, uh, debt, wholesale and retail, and funds. Um, our buyers and, uh, the, the buyers are essentially both retail and wholesale investors. Um, that's sort of the, the front of house view, but behind the scenes, there's, a, there's complexities as to what goes on and how uh, transactions are settled. So we operate a clearinghouse, which ensures that the buy and sell side are matched and paid two days later after the transaction. And we also provide uh, data and insight services uh, to participants in the market so that they can see what the bid and ask prices are uh, for uh, shares or debt and um, can can give uh, insights into various aspects of the market like the value-weighted average price, etc. Um, in a nutshell, that's the core market. It does have a few uh, additional bits in that we uh, run the run and settle the energy market in New Zealand, uh, where we match uh, generators and retailers, generators who sell the electricity, retailers who buy it, and then on sell it to the end customer. Uh, and we also run. Uh, so, what are those? Um, just just interrupt there. What are those generators doing in in, in that situation? Essentially, essentially, the way electricity flows around the electricity network. Uh, it's measured at certain points and prices are fixed at certain points. The software that we run essentially matches buyers and sellers at those points. The, the, the sellers being the, re the generators who've generated the electricity and the buyers being the, the retail companies who you and I as a homeowner deal with. Um, they, they effectively match up the prices, the bid and ask a price, it gets matched and that sets the price at a wholesale level between generation and, and uh, retail distributors. Yeah, so it's the core markets, your core business is what you're most well known for and I guess the, the front facing bit of that is the share market yeah. I guess and essentially there you're facilitating transactions between the buyers and the sellers. And so am I right to say that the way you guys make money is by taking a, a clip on the ticket, essentially? Essentially, yes. The, um, the, the, main, the main aspects are uh, the, 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 the products, as, as you would liken them to trade me, are equity products, which is company shares. It is retail debt. It is funds. So it's more than just equity, albeit that equity is probably 80% of the total market's capitalization. Uh, and and, a, and there's a fee for the the seller of those being on the or the, the company being on the market. Likewise, when a transaction mm. occurs, there is a percentage, a small um, portion of a percentage charge on on the trading, mm. both from a trading perspective, uh, use of the trading system, but also from a clearing perspective, where we are the clearer and we effectively guarantee that. That both sides of the transaction will be um, cleared, as in cash will flow. So we, we match all right. the full markets buying and selling activity over a two-day period, and essentially ensure that funds flow appropriately. Okay, so I guess if I'm understanding you correctly, if I if I have my company ABC company and I want to list it on the stock market to have facilitate transactions between buyers and sellers of my of my shares i'm paying a subscription essentially every year to, to the stock exchange yes and I, uh, what, we, what we would call an yep. annual listing fee and yep. and yep. Uh, yep. If, when i 
uh, as that company goes and it raises more capital, it would pay an incremental fee as well. As they get larger, Correct. essentially. Yeah, yeah. And then the other part is that you're taking a small slice of every transaction that someone makes. And then the third part is the clearing part. Do you guys carry any risk with the clearing side of things if someone doesn't fulfill an obligation? That's right. And um, we, we mitigate that risk in, in several ma- ways. Uh, we hold uh, large amounts of collateral from the market participants. So we're talking about the brokers, the investment banking community who participate in the market for their underlying retail clients. So they post collateral, uh, which we hold as cash short-term deposits uh, in case something did go wrong. Additionally, then, uh, in the cash market, we have what we call a holding of risk capital. We hold $20 million cash on our balance sheet to cover out the risk of a failure. Uh, of one of those market participants. And then in the dairy derivative market, we also operate a mutualized default fund, uh, whereby that risk capital is contributed both by ourselves and by the market participants, which is the big big investment banks. So that that cash on your balance sheet is under cash and cash equivalents restricted, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's essentially to protect participants in the market, yes, it isn't is. it? Yes, and, and, you know, it's not, we look at it as being non-distributable. So I'm at pains every, every year end to point out that we have large cash balances that we can't distribute as dividends. Right, of course, yeah. Um, and obviously the way the, I guess, the stock exchange works in 2019 is a lot different to how it worked in 1919. Um are you able to just describe some of the changes that's happened in the market in the last, or it doesn't have to be 100 years, especially the last few years? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, the, the fun, fundamentally, the biggest change over that period of time is the electrization of the market. Um, in particular, what we're finding over the last few years is uh, more non-display unit type trading. What I mean by that, well, previously where you had active fund managers uh, having humans investigating and trading uh, stocks we're now finding that there's more and more use of automation in that process and consequently the the sort of third leg of our core market being the data and insights business has opportunities to provide more data and more insights to investment banks for example or participants who are um, actively using these non-display units to to mathematically or systematically drive their trading because that i guess that data in the past wasn't didn't have the ability to well it was captured in a different way it tended to go to terminal revenue which is like a a bloomberg terminal where you as an individual would Mm. sit and watch a screen and and be able to inquire and look up information on a particular stock one at a time whereas uh, this is more uh, the, the systems of the participants absorbing all the market data in one go uh, the, the the individual or the trader will have programmed in what trades it needs to do. The system will actively do those over over the day, rather than the trader having to make buy sell decisions. The system fundamentally does that mm. within the bounds of how it's programmed in. So is that is that kicking into the area of the I guess the automated and high frequency uh, trading? Autom- I'd love to hear your views on that. But it's it's not it's not high frequency necessarily. Uh, it's more just mm. execution of. Uh, something that previously would have been a manual process. 
the frequency, the high frequency is a potential and is a use of the data and information that we can provide, but not necessarily. So it's, it's, it's active managers who have an investment manager, but not necessarily the number of investment managers they previously had. And just on the high frequency stuff, I wasn't intending to ask you about this, but it popped into my mind. Are you, are you seeing any of that in New Zealand at the moment? Because I know it's very prevalent in the United oh, look, States. There's, there's undoubtedly some, but I wouldn't say it's as, as big as over there. It, it's, it's definitely being taken up by some participants, but I, w- I, wouldn't, I mm. wouldn't call it um, a massive part of the market. And would that be a a good thing for you guys as a business? Well, I think price discovery is good for everyone in that uh, if, if automation and machines are posting uh, their trades into their buy and sell orders into the trading systems that everyone can see what those uh, those are. Over the last few years, you, you asked me about how the market's changed. Automation is one of them. Another aspect is the increasing use of on-market as being the prevalent uh, price discovery point. That's very important for the integrity of the market, especially from a retail investor perspective, in that basically the price that you see on the screen is the the best price or the most likely price. So we've seen over the last 10 plus years on market trading growing from 20% to um, last year, it was over 50, approximately 53, 4%. And that means that when you when you look at a screen, you know that that's the price of the particular stock and you don't have to necessarily uh, ask a broker what they're saying that's not on the screen. Mm, okay, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned we got distracted there a bit, but you mentioned some of your guys' other business yeah, lines I mean, like, as well, this outside yeah, of the, the core the, areas. The sort of non-core areas which are adjacency to the core and they, they expand the market in, in totality are firstly our funds management business and secondly our wealth technologies business. The, the funds management business is uh, passive ETF business, exchange-traded funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week, it's announced a, a partnership with BlackRock to issue a few of their iShare funds and expand that part of the market. Um, why it's exciting area for us is in New Zealand, um, ETFs represent about 3% of the market capitalization. In America, it's over 30%. In Europe, it's over 20%. So we see a significant growth opportunity there. When you combine that with KiwiSaver, and potential increases in KiwiSaver rates, we see that part of the market growing substantially, and we believe we're best positioned to take advantage of that. Mm, absolutely. I mean, the ETF thing, especially during a, a, a bull market where indexes have trended up and to the right, are just increasing in popularity. Indeed, and, and that's back to that uh, 30% plus in America, whereas it's only 3% here, and it will become uh, not necessarily trendy, but a, a low-cost strategy for people as as they sort of progress their savings. Mm. And it's a fantastic business for you guys yeah, as well, believe, isn't it? Yeah, we believe so. It's, um, it's well set. You know, we've, we've, um, we've got the right partnerships. We've um, set the business well for growth in the future uh, by activating our five-year strategy, I believe. Yeah. Did you want to talk a bit more about the the fight? That was the was that the two thousand seventeen strategy? Wasn't was it? Yes. Uh, you know, the part of part of the new CEO Mark Peterson coming on board in early seventeen was a relook at the the strategy. Fundamentally, it's been a back to core business, core markets approach. We've uh, disposed mm. of some non-core assets 
uh, through 2018 and gone a, a lot more client centric, uh, which lets us focus on, on well, both companies and participants uh, and service those better. So the, the internal focus that was pre-17 has, has gone and now there's a lot more people actually inter interacting with um, market participants. So focusing on the core business is is going back to focusing on the the transactional side of things and the financial market here. Yeah, just customer centric approach. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the the businesses that we divested that were non core were, for example, an agricultural newspaper, uh, which most people wouldn't have known that the stock of Jane Jones. I think to be fair, <laughs> I, I didn't know that. So so that sort of gives you a bit of context of. The types of things we dispose of and, and yeah really getting back to that that core buyer seller matching type approach but but being focused on both sides and, and um, getting to deliver their needs to which end the strategy last year uh, in implementing it really was focused uh, initially on alleviating what i'd call barriers or blockages uh we we sort of changed lots um, but maybe the name but a few we we reset the the rules for the market um, the previous rules were were 500 pages long they talked about telexes um, you're probably mm. too young to remember what a telex is uh, but but uh, <laughs> you know that, that that would maybe give you an indication of how uh, long ago the the rules have been set and hadn't been changed. So 500 pages, they're now down to 100 pages and more in English. Uh, within those mm. 100 pages, what we've also done is open up some more products uh, that we can market. So uh, the best example is funds. So exchange traded funds we've talked about a bit earlier, but all funds can now be easily listed on the market. Uh, prior to Christmas, we had a carbon fund listed by SALT under the old rules. It required 43 pages of waivers from, from the regulation team to be able to comply with the old rules. Now, under the new rules, it wouldn't require any waivers. It could just list straight away. So it's a quantum difference in the, the compliance obligation placed on a fund to list. Uh, that that will make a difference, in and of course that reduces the the costs for the fund, and therefore reduces the costs for Correct. the end user, and, right? And therefore makes it more likely that funds will come and list. Likewise, we've also opened up um, the wholesale debt market, which for a retail investor they 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 may not they won't be able to invest in. But basically, what we're talking about here is central government central government borrowings being uh, compliance listed on the stock exchange. As overseas investors look at government debt, they want to know that their that that debt is listed and goes through a continuous disclosure style regime. Uh, which gives them mm. an added degree of comfort to allow them to invest in it. In some instances, it's actually a hurdle to investing into government debt. And likewise, there are um, some central government agencies which will, um, or local bodies which will come on and, and uh, issue wholesale debt in a similar manner. So, you know, it's just opened up uh, a lot more product. As I, as I said, maybe at the start, everybody tends to focus on equity shares. It's 80% of the market cap at this point in time. But uh, we have grown the retail debt market to be 20%. It's grown extensively over the last few years and continues into this year to grow that way. But we've also opened mm. this wholesale debt market and funds market, which we look to, to grow over the, the foreseeable future. 
Now, the one, yeah. the one bit that I didn't mention in terms of our business, um, I talked about three aspects, core markets, uh, the funds management. There's also the wealth technology aspect to our business. And it's, it's uh, pretty much a startup. It offers um, uh, the advisor community a piece of software to manage portfolios for retail investors, essentially. So it's the piece of software, when you look at the screen, it adds up your portfolio, it does all your transactions, it does all your reporting. And uh, that. So, would, would al- if, if a fund manager were to buy some shares, for example, it would allocate the stock amongst the various accounts and stuff like that, so they don't need to do all uh, that more, themselves. More the advisor, when the advisor is managing your your personal right. wealth, if the advisor makes a decision to exit one stock and enter another stock, he can apply it across all his clients. Or if he changes yes. his yep. asset allocation between. Uh, equities or fixed income or overseas uh, investments, you can do it in totality or you can do it individually. But it also allows you to report on an individual basis, etc. That's that's the nature of that business. And and the exciting bit there is it's it's effectively only a startup. Um, we brought on our first big client uh, last year, late last year, which jumped the funds under administration in that business from what, roughly one billion to two billion. And now we have an active pipeline of, of 40 billion worth of advisor community funds under administration that shows you, that probably shows you the size of the, you know, the size of growth that we can hope for in that particular business. Now, with, with that business, right, how, how would you, how do you make money from that? How, do, how does that get monetized if it's a, at the startup stage? At the uh, well, fundamentally, um, the, the startup component has been developing the software. The core platform is there. A little bit of development uh, for specific client requirements is required still, but it's, it's there, it's operational. The way we charge is essentially a, a, a BIP basis, a, a small percentage of the funds under administration. And, and the service offering yeah. will determine the actual charge. So we can effectively be the back office for an advisor, full full service, mm. or we could just provide the software with the, uh, the, the, the the investment bank providing the back office personnel, shall we call it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when I talk to other investors and I talk about the NZX with them, the first thing that they invariably say to me is that there's not enough IPOs in New Zealand um, and they, they point to certain examples and everything like that. So I'd love to catch your views on that topic. Yeah, sure. Much. I mean, obviously, the more listings, the better. I think we'd all, all agree on that. And certainly it's a, a pretty much a largely global uh, developed world phenomenon that the current point in the site. I think to, in, to interrupt you there, that's what I think a lot of people miss is that if you actually look at the US markets, there was 8,000 stocks in 1995 and there's something like 4,000 now. I don't quote me the exact numbers, but I guess you just don't notice it as much in a larger yeah, that, market. Yeah, that's, that's correct. I mean, it is a global phenomenon um, and it is a point probably in the cycle, the economic cycle post-global financial crisis. You know, my, my personal view is it's the same cycle has just been elongated. When when uh, private equity starts to divest and looks at uh, IPOing some of its investments, that's when we'll see things turn. Um, that's at a really high level. At a at a at a sort of here and now level, it is forefront of our mind. It is a focus. I think also in the early late nineties, early two thousands, you had a lot of frivolous listings as well, and not not in New Zealand necessarily, but definitely worldwide. 
after the tech boom and everything like that. Yeah, and, and obviously we want to attract quality listings to the market. So, you know, the, the, the refocus of the strategy has been, as I said, client-centric. And with regard to our issuer relationship team, it's, it's about focusing on um, not just equity, but also the other, the other products, wholesale and debt, but talking to clients and potential clients, setting up a process that builds a pipeline, informs that pipeline as to the advantages of being listed, provides encouragement and guidance along the way, and, and really pushes them towards um, join, joining us on the market. Now, um, what I would say is, you know, changing the rules has alleviated some of the barriers and, and cost to, to entering on the stock exchange. But it is, a, it is very much an ecosystem. Um, an IPO is an, an ecosystem event. Uh, we believe we have done what we can to encourage more IPOs. Um, there's more to more, more to an IPO than just us. You know, there's a there's a full community involved, and we call that the ecosystem. So, as part of our long-term strategy, we have co-sponsored with the FMA the Capital Markets 2029 initiative, um, being led by Martin Stern and and uh, with EY providing the, the the grant work support, and and fundamentally that independent project is going around the the whole ecosystem, the whole market and um, getting the views of what the constraints, blockages and barriers are to the IPO pipeline at the moment and, and working out what recommendations they can do uh, either in terms of market settings, market structure, regulation to, to holistically uh, improve the IPO pipeline position. Absolutely. So, I mean, what are some of the challenges that you see from from the IPO perspective because obviously there's been some I guess relatively high profile companies that have have either decided New Zealand companies I mean that have decided to miss out the NZX altogether and just directly on the ASX and then perhaps the most high profile one was zero deciding to delist completely from the NZX uh, yeah, I mean, maybe dealing with zero first. I mean, I joined just after the zero announcement. Um, right. And uh, look, I think the, uh, the the feel in the place here was, was certainly one of disappointment. Um, we believe the reasons that uh, zero moved were certainly um, other companies that achieved those, those reasons or, or requirements and retained uh, primary listing on the NZ Stock Exchange. And I could reel off. The examples of A2 Milk, Fisher and Paykel, Healthcare, Sky City, and maybe Mainframe. Um, you know that global growth and, and global liquidity in the stock is achievable in the NZX. But more importantly, it, it it probably was a bit of a reality check for the the business in that um, mm. we you know we we have had in, have, we're in the process of deciding what the new strategy was and look as a result of that we've progressed down this memorandum of understanding route with other stock exchange exchanges uh, you'll note that last year we signed one with nasdaq and that gives us the ability to deliver in the long run deliver what exactly those particularly it companies may want and that may ultimately be a global listing in nasdaq and and with with this memorandum of understanding that is heading towards being a possibility rather than having to um, jump from exchange to exchange to get to that point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, there was another part to your question there. 
Yeah, I was more. I guess I was referring to companies like Volpara and 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 other businesses that have decided not to list on the NZX at all and, and go straight. Yeah, to look, ASX. I mean, there's, there was good analysis a few months back in the paper of probably the last eight or ten that had gone down that route and how successful they had been. Um, Mm. Some, some, only, a, only a few have been. But uh, as I said, each it's the ecosystem. Each of those probably has its own reason as to why it went, where it ultimately did. Um, and the capital markets 2029 will delve into uh, each of those reasons and look at uh, are there barriers to entry, are there blockages? How can we change market structure or regulation to? of them to join the local market. Um, so it's, it's not just the, uh, the IPO settings or regulations or rules that we have just changed. You know, it's full support of the, the, the ecosystem, be it um, brokers, analysts, fund managers supporting a listing. Um, it's more, there's more to it than just a, a simple choice thing. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, do you think part of the reason is that there's, there's other alternatives these days. I'm guessing, you know, 40 years ago, if you wanted to raise money, one of the ways to do it, one of the few ways to do it was through the public markets. I mean, even now you see some small and mediocre companies that can raise money through angel investing and things like that. Is, is it just that there's, there's a lot more alternatives out there now? I think there's always been uh, people willing to invest in risk, risk, uh, invest risk capital uh, or risk riskier or, or younger developed type um, companies. Uh, it's just that it's probably easier to find them or in the current environment, they're actually out hunting to um, they, yeah. the, the current asset allocations globally is towards more private equity and risk capital as, as interest rates are low, people are seeking return. Therefore, at this point in time, asset allocations are towards the more risky end of capital. That cycle will change at some point. Uh, asset allocation will come back to more equ normal equity or standard equity and and uh, fixed income uh, away from private equity and that's when you see companies that have moved to private equity more likely to come on to the public markets at that point yeah and you mentioned the word listing pipeline yep a minute ago how's the listing pipeline so to speak well with the issuer relationship team formed as part of the, the, the new strategy, they, their role is to actively service our current clients and search for potential clients. Now, uh, essentially, they will have a, a list that anyone can go and make up from public records of the larger companies and have assessed them as to uh, where where they may go in the future, uh, as in stay in private ownership or come to the public markets. And then they actively engage and go through a, a process of determining whether we can help them or not uh, with, the, with their journey to the future. Um, you know, it's, it's as promising as it has been over the last few years. Uh, clearly, there's the odd yep. company in the, that has gone uh, to the in the press about potentially listing in the future. Um, the easiest example to give is Port of Napier. They're, you know, they have in, Port of Napier. Yeah, they've indicated a, a, yeah. a desire to list. Um, clearly, clearly, as I said before, the ecosystem uh, needs to get behind and support that, and uh, we look forward to that happening. Um, so there are there are changes occurring. Um, the pipeline, look, we are active with a lot of companies, um, but they could be 
two, three, five years away from actually listing. It is a long process. Because it's not like just switching on a light, is it? Not unless you're pre-prepared, no. Mm, yeah. And one of the reasons that prompted me to, to reach out to you guys was some of the publicity Brian Gaynor's article from the other week got regarding the NZX. So I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your sort of thoughts and views on that as well. Yeah, well, clearly, as I've said earlier, more listings is clearly what we want. Um, his article was a few days before our Investor Day presentation. Uh, I saw that. I wonder, I'd wonder if you guys chucked that out after the article. No, obviously it was no, planned. no. It was <laughs> just, I mean, we fundamentally know we need more, well, more, no, we need more listings. Uh, so we're actively trying to get more listings. Um, it's an interesting conundrum, as, as Mr. Gainer points out, that uh, we may need to spend some to get some uh, in a period of time where other uh, certain number of investors are requesting that we don't spend money. So we, we found that bit interesting. But fundamentally, you know, our, our investor day went into the detail of the, the processes that we have implemented under the new strategy to build a pipeline, to inform the pipeline, to encourage the pipeline. Um, but as I've said before, we need the ecosystem to get behind us. And as a result of that, we have, we have co-sponsored with the FMA like Capital Markets 2029. And I guess it take, like, like you said, it doesn't happen overnight unless you're ready for it. it, it it takes a time from inception to build that ecosystem and then to see the, so we might see the results in two, three, four, five, ten years down the road. That, that's correct. You know, it is, it, it, there's very few companies with, which would be at the stage where they could just immediately start into the IPO process. It does take a little bit of time to line everything up and, and certainly change mentality uh, from being, you know, private to being in a continuous disclosure environment. Mm. And you mentioned um, some of your shareholders there. I guess you're referring to, and I guess they're also one of your market participants, I guess you're referring to Elevation Capital, who's taken a bit of a, I guess, activist role. I'm not sure if that's the right term, an activist role as a shareholder. Well, we, 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 talked, to, we talked to all our investors, all our shareholders, uh, as part of our investor relations program. So, you know, we actively listen to any suggestions our shareholders have. And, and Elevation, of course, is, is one of them, which um, was a bit more in the public domain. Um, we certainly have talked to them a lot since, since that point in time. I would say, as we have explained what the new strategy is, uh, they have come to understand that probably there's a, a high degree of overlap with what they were suggesting versus what our strategy had changed to, maybe as high as 85%. But certainly there were aspects of what they suggested that we have taken on board and, and implemented. Mm. The, the easiest and most pr uh, recent examples, the Investor Day, they had requested that we do do a, a new Investor Day. And, and certainly the feedback from that has been good, that it was something we certainly needed to do with the rest of our investors. Um, but the same token, there's the odd thing that we don't necessarily um, think is the right time to implement that they've suggested. And, uh, you know, uh, we, we take on all feedback and, and we welcome discussion with all shareholders if they have good ideas. Um, it's the nature of investor relations as far as we're concerned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've, I've pretty much run through all my questions. I'd love to sort of give you a, a final word or if there's anything else you would sort of like to talk about. Uh, well, look, you know, I think I would encourage people to go and have a look at our uh, Investor Day presentation and our year-end Investor Day 2018 financial results. 
we we believe um, the opportunities ahead are quite big for our funds management business, our wealth technology business, and for our dairy derivatives business, which we haven't overly talked a lot on uh, today. But um, we 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 see we're pretty optimistic. We're pretty optimistic about the future. Uh, the key for us, as you've rightly pointed out, is converting uh, IPOs into reality with the help of the ecosystem. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate your, your your time, Graham, and we look forward to. I guess we're looking forward to the maybe the port of Napier and some other companies listing listing on the NZX in the future. Yeah, I mean they've stated the intention. Um, there's a long way to go, I'm sure, for them. Uh, but as long as the ecosystem gets behind them and, and you know, the brokers help, the investment banks help, the fund managers help, the analysts help, um, it'll get there. Cool. Thanks very much. No worries. Time, Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. See ya. Right, well, I hope you enjoyed the interview. Like I said at the start of the episode, I certainly enjoyed doing it. I mean, I found Graham very honest and direct. You know, when you say things like, we know we need more listings, you know, that, that's what we want to hear. So many thanks again for listening into the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I said or Graham said today should be considered financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find it and give it a like by searching on Facebook and Twitter now also. Make sure also to share it with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 39 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 10th of May 2019. I'll see you all again next week.